0: Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. Our guest today is four time Olympic gold medalist, founder of Right to Play, and president of Wartime Impact, Johan Koss. In this episode, you will learn how Johan overcame the pressures of competing in his hometown for the 94 Olympics, his transition into building Right to Play, a global nonprofit, and his insights on how to learn more about yourself and your passions by overcoming failure there's a lot of takeaways in this episode so I hope you enjoy and here it is and I, I told you before before we just started that you're the first gold medalist I've ever met so my first question is is there any better feeling than winning a gold medal
1: Ah that's a good question actually I think it's uh very difficult to experience that feeling i think again in life i mean it's absolutely unique and because it's a total physical exhaustion so you're totally exhausted exhausted and then at the same time you have an emotional high which is unprecedented so you and you prepared particularly in the olympic you know competition you're prepared for it for 4 years or even more but that little single moment, every kind of entire life up to that moment feels like you've been preparing for it. So it's a big, big moment. Very hard to compare anything else. Though I will say, and I have to say this obviously because I have four children and my wife uh, might listen to this. Uh, She'd say, you know, having children with my wife is the number one yes. emotional experience. Which is similar except. I did not do the physical labor, she did. Uh, so uh, so from that perspective, that was also exceptionally em- emotional.
0: So that's what it's like to win one gold medal. Mm-hmm. Is there any better feeling than winning four gold medals? No, that's a good week. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I had one goal in 92 and then I had three in 94. So the three was in one week and there was three races and three world records and then the last race, but it felt I remember it was very vivid. It like, felt like a whole backpack with rocks was thrown off my back after I finished the uh, last race. That was because, in your hometown, right? Yeah, it was in Norway and where I'm from. And it felt like all the pressure and I put on myself for a decade to prepare for this was gone because I managed to succeed what I was, wanted to do. Um, and I'd, it felt like I was flying literally afterwards, which uh, was, was a beautiful, most beautiful experience, yeah.
0: So you mentioned that pressure, you know, how do you how do you train for years leading up to that with all that pressure and how do you handle it, you know, on the day of performance or even, you know, opening ceremonies and, and, the, and the days leading up to the race? Well, there's,
1: I think it's a couple of things this has thought a lot of, I thought a lot about that and actually I trained a number of Canadian athletes to prepare for the home Olympics in Vancouver to prepare for their pressure, which was come up because there's an there's an elevated pressure when you have it at home because you expect it to do well at home and everybody wants medals and you compete for your home nation. So the psychological training is, uh, is key and that can help you prepare uh, a lot on the way of how to react to your own personal nervousness because the pressure you come most, the biggest pressure is from your own expectation or hope and dream for your performance. And I found that if I could find a normalcy after the games, like I, what can happen if I fail? I had you had I had to create an acceptance to failure. If I had no acceptance to failure, I wouldn't be able to have so success.
0: And this is probably applicable to a lot of folks who, you know, outside of just athletes, who put pressure on themselves for a number of things. You know, whether it's exams or presentations. Exactly. So
1: anything like that, anything like that, you you have exactly the same thing. You. You know, you know, when you go into an exam, for instance, and all of a sudden, you feel black. You know, your brain goes black, and I can't remember anything, and you remembered everything the day before. It's an overstimulation, basically, of overstressing your brain, and you don't get into the flow. And most of it is fa- fear of failure, uh, you know, because you fear that you will, you know, fail so badly, and then it happens, which is you know, a dramatic experience. So what and does it's accepting to, failure
0: look like then? And that's it.
1: How do you accept it? So for me, failure? exactly. So that's, that's a good question. So for me, it was like, okay, if I fail, because, you know, I prepare 10 years, eight, six to eight hours a day, uh, seven days a week for this event. Um, and I mean, I don't think I could see myself do anything in life if I wasn't successful in this. Like, how can I be successful with anything else? I can't do anything. I will be a failure the rest of my life if I fail now. So it was... For me, I went through this kind of process at the same time. And this, I think, is important, particularly for athletes, is to get some education so you feel like you have, you can do something different when you finished. And I wouldn't, I, my dream was to become a doctor. So I sat there literally three days, four days before the Olympics in home country in 94 and cried because I felt like I would not, I will fail and I will never be good at anything in life. And, and then I was like, then I had the conversation with a psychologist, which I'd, I'd been working with for Three and a half years in preparation on my, my mind for this game. And she said, like, we were talking about, like, what did you think if you fail, what, how will that impact your medical training and being a doctor? And you can actually, amazing, amazingly enough, failure will be a very great thing to be a doctor if you fail in one thing because you're going to create a high level of empathy. Mm. Uh, because kind of, you, know, you can be empathetic with other people who also have had struggles in life and not succeeded where they wanted. And of course, that's a good thing. Empathy you want from doctors, I think. And so we came up with the conclusion that, yeah, if I really fail, I can, become, I can use that failure to become a good doctor.
0: That's wild. So you, you pivoted or you spun the failure yeah. to benefit you. Yeah, to to,
1: to to create the acceptance. You yeah. so how are you creating the acceptance of that? So I I knew that, and I can kind of reasonably, logically say that you know it doesn't really. I can still become a good doctor. I can still learn to be a doctor. Plus, I can have a lot of empathy, uh, in the in the process. You know,
0: that's fascinating.
1: So you so you wait. need to find an arena where you can you can use your ability. What you do fail in, and you can use that to your advantage, which means that there is a there's an acceptance to the failure mm-hmm. because, I mean, if you, if there's no, if if everything in the failure becomes black, the fear of that failure would be even bigger.
0: And I, I wonder what your opinion is on all these entrepreneurs and these, you know, the, the, these people who say, you know, burn the boats. Failure is not an option. There should never be a plan B, you know, only plan A. How how do you, what are your thoughts on, on that as an alternative?
1: Well, I, I kind of, Someone lived that life also as a startup of Right to Play, and I think that it drives enormous amount of hard work, um, and you know you constantly. But they also has. I think that the people will feel like in that setting is it's not failure in a way where it's. People make mistakes but you reassess and you start doing something different and you move on and I think entrepreneurs are really fast of changing direction and from some th- things they're making a mistake there they don't take a long time before they can uh, go away from one strategy and pursue another one because they don't want to stay in the in a, in a direction where they know it's not going to be successful so I think you know so, so it's a kind of a little bit different now they also say about financially you throw all your money into it and you kind of send, if you that's why most entrepreneurs who, who makes that commitment then they don't have any other responsibilities you know you don't have a family you, you you spend your your 30s doing that you know immediately you have family and kids and everybody gets more conservative you have, a more, you have a much more complicated structure and you need, you need to make sure that because you have responsibilities outside your own self. I think an entrepreneur, when you do that, and I did it myself, I threw all my own money into it and I put all my energy into it. I wasn't afraid. I knew I would survive if I failed. You know, my thing was, of course, you just go and find another job somewhere else or you will, I was gonna be, again, I used my medicine because I stopped being a doctor. I could start with right to play and put all my energy and effort into that. I didn't even need to be paid because I didn't need to. You don't need a lot of money. You just get going at it. And then, if you fail, it doesn't matter because I can always go back to some other region. So I think every entrepreneur actually have that in the Mac mind. They're not that like, if they fail with this, even though they've thrown everything into it, hundred hours a week and all the money they have, they know that they they will land somewhere. I think everybody yes. will say that.
0: So so. Completely agree on that. And I love that answer. Um, You know, maybe take a step back and and, and tell us, you know, how you went from from being an Olympian to then um, founding your own, you know, international humanitarian organization, which is Right right to Play. Um, And maybe, you know, speak to a little bit about what what Right to Play is. Well, so
1: as I transitioned out of my sport career, it's kind of, there is, in sport, it's either on or off. It's very much, if you are if you're in it, you have to be in it 100%. Um, and if you say, I'm not in it anymore, literally you're out the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, it's, so I had prepared, first of all, in my preparation for the Olympics, I realized that spending eight hours a day just going straight forward, first left around the track was not enough for me. <laughs> I wanted to do more and then having the success on top of it. I love winning, trust me. And the feeling of winning was fantastic, but I didn't want to spend all every ounce of my energy to keep doing it. Uh, so I wanted to change. Now that's great in the beginning when you stop, but in the after, after and you see that with athletes when they retire, like after about 12 to 16 months, uh, it's it's a big hit You you create depression you have difficulty making the right choices you you don't have the same adoration again anymore which you had in the sport you definitely don't have the team feeling you by yourself you don't have the structure of support around you so you all of a sudden all of these factors hit you and if you don't then have another goal almost or equal important to what you had when you were an athlete you don't have anything to strive for so there is no reason for the decision you're making like as an athlete it's very easy actually because you have a goals clearly set There is a game or there's a competition or there's something like that. And that takes care of 85% of life's decisions for you So, so you don't need to make any decisions in some ways because things have created now all of a sudden you don't have that goal anymore mm-hmm. and then these 85% decisions you never done before comes at you all the time and you don't really realize why am I doing this versus that. So a lot of athletes struggle in that period of time, and they, some do come back because they feel lost without it. Um, Others start drinking. I mean, there's a whole bunch of uh, examples of that. Absolutely. Um, But I had very fortunate because I really were motivated about the experience I had in Africa, where just prior to the Olympics, where I saw children really need the ability to play, and the dream of participating in a team and being part of a sport and kind of being active was like something I took for granted, like everybody had. And I realized children affected by war didn't have it. And I actually saw my own role as if I could provide, using my athletic career to provide sporting opportunities for other children, that was a purpose for my athletic career. That was, and then having a purpose around that was a much bigger deal than just my personal goals because it's bigger than me. And actually gave me even more motivation. And of course, that purpose drove me to help these other people, which then again gave me another goal because there was a lot more children out there who needed this help. And there weren't many people who was doing this, using sport as a tool for development in the most disadvantaged areas of the world. And that, and it took me a while, but like, because I had to finish my medical degree and I was IC member in establishing the World Anti-Doping Agency. And UN Goodwill Ambassadors, I did a whole bunch of stuff for the... Yeah, know, just, 90s. you know,
0: small things off <laughs> so, the side of your desk. Yeah. So,
1: uh, so, but then I've, you know, I started formulating my thoughts about right to play. And then I realized that, that trying to convince both the international Olympic committees and, and the UN that they should do sport in these places, they were saying, no, I, we have, I have to form this. And then I went full into this and I, I was like any other entrepreneurs. Medicine was put aside... I put all my money into it, and this is what we have to get done and started from scratch when I came to Canada seventeen years ago
0: and what are some of the the goals of right to play
1: well it 's clearly now it's, so it 's evolved as well, but mm-hmm. it 's using sport and play to develop the most disadvantaged children, uh, both to educate them and empower them, protect them in a way of looking at how these the exact simple activities of games and game-based learning can really empower them to take control of their own life. So meaning if a girl knows how to protect himself from sexual harassment and abuse, they know how to say no, they know the value of their own body, they understand that they can protect themselves um, in any stage, shape or form, and they believe that their peers are doing it because they've been educated at this in the group setting, then they feel like, you know, I have the right to get educated to secondary and even thirdary education structure, and they set their own goals. Like, this natural thing, which it's the beauty of being part of something like this, is that you can actually set your, you learn how to set yourself goal. Failure, as you said originally, is something that comes all the time, but you don't give up, because you you just course correct and try new activities and work harder at it. So, this is an incredible life skill uh, because everybody fails. Like, you will fail, like Michael Jordan said. You know, everybody remembers his, his victories, but nobody remembers his 6,000 times if he missed the basket, you know? And all those 6,000 times is when he learned how to actually hit the basket properly, you know, at the right time. So it's interesting, like, it's how we, how we can reform, re, reshape failure to something good. And that's, again, back to that theme. So I felt like this was really critical, and that's what Right to Play is doing. We are educating children. Kids with sport-based or play-based learning, they have a higher level of academic results. They stay longer in schools, and they have much bigger beliefs in themselves, and they become entrepreneurs and teachers and lawyers and all sorts of things.
0: So, you know, working in the philanthropic space, I've come to realize how hard it is to garner uh, donations and dollars and support. Um, no, you
1: guys are pretty good at it.
0: <laughs> we're, we're doing our best. We're doing our best. But, you know, a, a big piece of it is is showcasing, you know, what you've done and communicating, you know, the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So when when you're, you know, getting this off the ground, right, and you have this thesis of, you know, providing these disadvantaged uh, you know, people with or and young kids with an opportunity to play will eventually empower them to do more good mm-hmm. a- and to accomplish more throughout their lives. How do you... You know, how do you convince other people of that? Because that, that might be a perception that's specific to an athlete. So how do you get non-athletes to understand that?
1: Well, I think actually uh, the, the, the original kind of belief is that this luxury in the situation of the places we're working, they need so much more, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then you go into everybody's personal life experiences and you talk about what they, who are they and why, why are they who they are. And, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people have had, you know, you know, existential important experiences from sport, you know, or it is individual sport or team sport or whatever it is. So they've been part of that. So they, they, they kind of recognize, yeah, wow, I haven't thought about it like that. But this kind of shaped me and that experience shaped me and that kind of stuff. Yes, it's exactly the same. It doesn't matter where you grow up. I mean, children are children everywhere in the world. And we have to create these opportunities. and. And realizing that this is so formative for the years and there is no really other arena to do it. There are others. I mean, you can do art and culture and music and stuff, but that's even more complicated. Having a ball in the field is easy. you know. And everybody knows the rules and it's easy for them to control themselves and they learn how, why we have rules in society. It's a kind of ma- massive amount of ability to mobilize large number of children for very low cost yeah. to do the right thing. And that's I mean, listen. It's a vision, and then we have executed on that vision. And we, you know, coming from a medical background, I had the understanding of systematic measuring of results. Uh, you know, with everything from randomized trials to understanding how you you put things in place, both from baseline to midterm and end term of project analysis, monitoring, evaluation, learning from everything we're doing on the way because we don't know what's right, what's not working, and what's working. So. Putting that in place kind of reconfirmed it for the co- for the donors that wow this actually has has an impact.
0: And what was the biggest struggle as you got it started? You know, but you said so you put yourself into it. What was the biggest struggle getting right to play off the ground?
1: I have a hard time saying what's the biggest struggle because it's yeah like the million things which yeah. can come to mind of which was obstacles. But was it a big struggle? Yeah, sometimes sometimes not. You know what I mean? The, the thing is. But I say to other people who want to start up an organization, do not write a business plan, because it's just a waste of time. <laughs> uh, it's just like I it, I didn't have, I know I had no strategy plan the first seven years.
0: So you had seven years without a business plan. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: <laughs> I mean, we had financial <laughs> sure. controls and financial plans and budgets, but and we had budgets. That was very important. And as mm-hmm. so I said, the number one thing you need to do is have a, a good accountant who looks after money. And then you have to, I have an idea of what the results you want and measure towards those results. And those two things you do. And then you've tried to figure out what you need to do to get there. Because I guarantee you the first three years you're going to do eight things. And probably only four or maybe two of those eight things are the right things to do. And then you have to be able to give up this four to six other things you're doing. So so if you have that written down and you promise everything, this is going to be happening and that kind of stuff. then you always constantly come back to this. It's a waste of time writing a business plan, a strategic plan. After seven years, a strategic plan is a great thing to mobilize when you have more than 80 to 100 people in the company. Because when you have that many people, you need everybody to be aligned under a strategic plan. That's when you need it. So you need to kind of tell people where the direction you're going there, and you do it through a strategic plan. If you less people than that, you can tell them personally all the time. Yeah. So it's easier.
0: So it's only when you hit that critical mass of 80 to 100 do you really need to start putting effort and resources into aligning everyone.
1: Yeah, and that's easy to do through a strategic plan. And, you know, of course, now we have very deep strategic plans and we had them all the time now. But again, that's a big difference in, uh, in, the, in this, how big the organization is.
0: As a, a founder of an organization like Right to Play, how hard was it to hand it over to someone else uh, to take over the, the CEO position?
1: I looked at this as three things you need to kind of make sure it's in place. First of all, is the, my own personal readiness to give it up. Um, now, I've, fortunately, I have given up a very big career before, so I knew what I was going to and why it was important, even though you're going to miss it dramatically. And I also knew what type of ex- emotional experience I will have afterwards, uh, which is, you know, I had after I retired the first time in sport from sport. So mental readiness. The other thing is the board readiness. If you're if is the organization, board in organization, is it ready to actually take over? So you're not getting pulled into work in the organization. And the third part is the external environment. Are they ready for the change? Because mm-hmm. the identity of the organization is very much equal to the founder, you know. So people feel is it is the organization from the external view ready for the change. So you had to prepare all of those three things before you ever even think about transitioning. Of course, in the transition period, you had to find an individual who you trust who can take over their job.
0: How hard was that part? That was hard. How many people did you have to go through to find <laughs> one? Well,
1: the thing was, uh, together with the board and myself, we, uh, we didn't think we had anybody internally. And that's also classic. You want actually internal people to take over. But if there had been an internal person who had the guts to be the CEO, he probably wouldn't be there, you know, mm. because it's a, it's a, it's a very tough job to be the top guy. And when you have such a persons like me and a the founder, they, they feel such a big role. I mean, there's such a big personality in the organization. So another person will never kind of live in that environment you see what i mean like another person with similar type of strains you need to lead uh, probably wouldn't live underneath a person like that so that's why why it's very hard to find somebody internally particularly in a non-profit because you can't afford it either you know yeah. and there are a lot of excellent individuals who come through the process and you into you and if you look at and to talk to and stuff but they don't really have the right fit and mm-hmm. it's fit with the organization it's fit with me and it's fit with the board you know Put a lot of time and effort into this, making it mm-hmm. right. So you have to plan this as a planned process. You cannot just go and say, "Yeah, let's change." It doesn't work that way.
0: You you mentioned something before that you know, given that you're finding the CEO role for a nonprofit, that pay will just you know kind of diminish the the, the, the sheer number of folks who are willing to apply for the role or be considered for the role. Was that a big challenge for you to find a CEO who is willing to take a, a nonprofit pay?
1: But we are certainly competitive in the space of. Uh, international nonprofit in Toronto so you kind of look within your band and then you say yeah we'll be in the competitive range there so we are we are good in that sense now you know you cannot compare with the person from Bay Street yeah. uh, so but I don't think necessarily a basic Bay Street person will fit into a non-profit you know they think they will but it's the same as non-profit person don't think they will fit into Bay Street, so that's another compo- component. There's, I think, it's equal negativity on both sides, <laughs> in some ways.
0: So you just mentioned that, uh, you know, Bay Street and, and the non-profit world, somewhat oil and water type of relationship. Uh, well, I that's a. I didn't it, say that m- was m- your. M- that m- was m- your. M- m- not to put words in your. <laughs> yeah, but, but
1: it's. No, I think it's, it's a very symbiotic relationship. <laughs> actually, because it's, you know, um, non- non-profits are not, we cannot live without the Bay Street. Yeah, and exactly. So, and uh, the Bay Street feel really good about giving some yes. money away <laughs> to the non So And they, they like the galas and the dinners and the stuff. So it's, there's clearly a symbiotic relationship. Yes. But the, the symbiotic doesn't necessarily mean that you can move from one to the other side.
0: Which you have... Somewhat done in this. I'm Young Street. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, so for, for, for those of you listening, we um, are at the, the, the Warta head office here, which is uh, not technically on Bay Street as, as we're on, uh, nor, you know, midtown on Young Street here. Um, but Warta, obviously one of the, the most well-respected and, and well-regarded uh, hedge funds in Canada. Uh, and you are the president of Warta Impact. So you've you've made a, a bit of a, a career transition here into finance. Uh, yeah. What what drove that 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 change? So
1: this. Is, so first of all, I'm really thankful to be. So there are possibilities to move over <laughs> or to go from one to the other side, and uh, we've seen success on in that before, and probably see that in the future as well. But and worth has been great to me. They they want to welcome me. Now I was looking. I've been. Uh, Raising about half a billion dollar in capital for nonprofit in the last fifteen years, and uh, I, you so know, there's in this, no small
0: chunk of change. No,
1: there's a lot of money actually. So, and the bit we used it really well um, yep. in the nonprofit way. I mean, had an incredible impact, Maybe more than ten million kids through our program over those years. So it's very effective uh, way of using money. And, um, but the money is always been used. And there is no in the non-profit world you don't have any kind of ability to do financial returns on it. So I was thinking how can we use the capital market to make impact? How can we look at our biggest challenges we have in our society and make sure that we can invest it in the right way, in the right solutions to you know solve some of our global problems like everything from emission to so uh, pollution, greenhouse gases, uh, electrification of vehicles, looking at, you know, our energy energy story. I mean, all of these type of elements we know in relation to environment. Uh, we look at the social issues of employment and gender issues, harassment, protections, all these things, you know, in relation to kids, education as well. On the social side, there are incredible solutions out there. And you can make it into a business which I think will have high returns in the next decade or... 15, 20 years, it will, uh, and also have a great impact in our society, and the capital will have a as good or even better return on your investment, so you can actually reuse the capital of the future for other things as well, to keep investing it, in it, because the market will pay for it, uh, and that's, I think that's a very exciting challenge, which I'm looking forward to get on.
0: So I think you just kind of uh, described what impact investing is uh, in your answer, I guess, you know, financial returns, but with a, a social benefit. What comes first in impact investing, the financial return or the social benefit?
1: Well, we say here, we are definitely do no, um, we will not have any lower return than any of the other funds we're having. You know, um, we will have equal return on this fund as we do with a very successful fund already. Now, what I like about Warthai is that we have a very conservative risk management side of things. They've been looking at uh, the volatility and risk factors here are, are low in comparison to the re- returns uh, they're receiving. Um, so they're very clever investors in relation to the market. And I think uh, you can actually also apply another ESG factor on the risk settings. We see constantly companies failing um, in relation to ESG elements, if it's cyber, everything from cybersecurity to pollution of Volkswagen. You know, there is a m- number of things which has incredible damning results on their stock prices. So, yeah, there is. we can look at that as a screening factor yep. and then reduce even further our risk factor for long-time long, long time returns. So that's a, But that's kind of a risk element to it. Now we also want to see that we actually have a big impact, on top of that, so there's a long answer to the easy question. We will look for good financial return equal to any other performance in the fund, uh, with the with the risk factors and volatility factor element to that, uh, as well as long term impact. So it's, there is not like a we don't believe it into compromise on return because we want to create social impact it's not at all actually we, I personally think that we will have higher returns but I can't say that
0: <laughs> can't guarantee it I can' not certainly not yeah. <laughs> guarantee it.
1: You cannot guarantee any returns. that's like 600 disclaimer sites pages, yes. <laughs> of this you're gonna read up all our disclaimers
0: too. So let me switch gears and ask you like a kind of a, a broader question It seems like throughout your your life you've always you know done something that, that you've loved like you started with with obviously you know speed skating and then he transitioned that into, into playing and bringing play to, to the world, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, and, and now you've taken what most would deem as a, uh, a a traditional corporate role. And But there was no rush into that. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not gonna say your age, uh, you know, but <laughs> you're now, you know, a really? bit older. I'm a young 49er. You're, <laughs> you're a young 49. You look great for 49, and you know, what advice would you give to to all these kids who are graduating who are rushing to get in these corporate roles
1: uh, i mean isn't if they feel like they want to do have a corporate role you can learn a lot from that and yeah go in and do stuff i mean isn't that um, but if you feel like you're doing it because other people are doing it and because you're feeling like somebody else tells you to do it don't do it so it all depends on where it comes from i've been exceptionally fortunate to to do what I want to do like this is my it's nobody tells me how to do this or that or kind of anyway it's been my choices all the time so that's uh, and that's what I'm saying to young people go find out what you're passionate about and try to carve out time for that in your day life in everything you're doing and see how you enjoy doing that. More than you do other things. And, you know, our lives, I mean, life, you realize quickly that life is pretty short in a way, and time goes exceptionally fast, and it just goes faster and faster. The older you get. So you really have to figure out, like, okay, what am I really like doing? And who do I like or have around me and doing it with? Because those two, if you can get through that, then you can get through the hard times, and you can, there's always going to be tough things and to do and boring things to do, you have to get through, but then you feel like there is more on the positive side than the negative
0: side. Absolutely. And so, and I think that's, that's great advice. And, and, and you know, finding something that you, you like doing is, is, that you enjoy doing and spending your time doing that is probably the most important thing you can do.
1: But I find this hard, I, I talk to a lot of students and I this is surprised how little they are, are aware of what they like. Well, that's it. So it's, it's a, I think, and I was wondering if this is because of our devices we have today because we are constantly inundated with information and entertainment and you know we we kind of also are somewhat of a narcissistic display you know for ourself all the time so we get all the recognition of ourself and who we are and we're placing that out so we get more likes but we really don't know what we like you know <laughs> except we had to like other people because we, they were like us, you know. So it's like, like, it's like a, it's a narcissistic kind of view of who we are, and we get reconfirmed just of things what we're putting out without really thinking about it or spending time, uh, kind of spending time on things which you have to work to understand, because it's like because you can be constantly there is a constant feedback, there's constant information, there's constant something to read and see and do. And I think by that you stop working yourself. You don't stop working your own mind. Yeah. Uh, so we get become, and then you stop knowing what you like, and that is a really big problem because then you get trapped into your own roles, and you know you're running after things which you think you like, but you actually don't like it.
0: And you're you're constantly trying to escape your current situation.
1: Um, of course. Which I mean, I'm not saying this is about everybody, but I'm mm-hmm. when I speak to students, I find it surprising that. I ask like how many knows what you're passionate about here? And then very, very few actually say and they're struggling to kind of describe what what really they like doing.
0: It's I, I think that's you hit the nail on the head on like one of the biggest issues with the you know, students and, and you know, the generation right now of millennials call it. Um, and you know, if you think about right to play you know, like that concept could almost work here where you're providing people with an opportunity to play because, yeah. like you said, it's such a narcissistic society. Everyone's so concerned about, you know, looking good mm-hmm. and and they're so scared of failing, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a fail of putting out a picture that doesn't get enough likes yeah. or failing, you know, to, to, to look good when they go out and, and you know, someone might see it. it whatever it is, like, there's this this constant fear of failure. And so to bring it back to what you said at the beginning, I think that, like, accepting failure for what it is and being able to turn it into a positive, it m- might be the most important thing that you could do.
1: Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's your. I agree with you in some ways. Yeah. It's a good ending of
0: this interview. Absolutely, it <laughs> a good been. conclusion. It, like it <laughs> we started there and we ended there. <laughs> that's you know, it doesn't get much better than that. They call that full circle, I believe. Well, Jan, <laughs> it has been honestly an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, like I said, you're the first gold medalist I ever got a chance to speak to. So, so that's uh, you know, th- thank you for that, and it's uh, quite a pleasure. Um, but I can also- line up a whole bunch of gold medalists for you <laughs> if you like future
1: interviews for the podcast. So, if everybody listening, I wanted to talk to more gold medalists. <laughs> I might,
0: might hold you to that. Yeah. Maybe throw in a few, you know, bronze medalists, just well, so do feel know, excluded. Those, those medals doesn't count. <laughs> No, and I, I, you know, we at Capitalize for Kids have, uh, you know, we we talk a lot about right to play and the work you guys are doing and and how incredible it is. And, you know, to get a chance to meet the guy who who brought that to life uh, and, you know, it is an absolute honor, truly, uh, you know, thank you for your time here. Uh, It's been a real pleasure and, uh, you know, hope we can do it again sometime. Well,
1: and keep up the good work for you guys. Absolutely,
0: thank you. Thanks everyone for tuning into this week's edition of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. We'll be having more conversations like these in the coming weeks, and look forward to sharing even more insights and actionable takeaways with all of you. For more information on Capitalize for Kids, and the work that we do to ensure a healthy mind for all children, please visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. This podcast was produced by Eugene McCashew, and I'm your host, Evan Saquera. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.